Good morning. Um, <clears throat> just wanted to give you all a, a quick update. I, I shared this with a number of you um, last week, but I wanted to, to let the rest of you in on some updates um, at the Simfukwe home. So um, my wife and family and I recently moved. Um, we uh, moved out of the hood um, in Winona Lake um, into a new home. Um, because recently somebody found out that our family was adopting two little girls from Haiti and they said, well, clearly you guys are going to need a bigger home. And so somebody bought us a house. Like, I mean, like who buys somebody a house, but apparently somebody thought it was okay to do that. And so they they bought us a house. And when I say house, you got to understand, I grew up in a relatively poor home. My parents made a combined annual income of less than $2,000. So for me, this is a mansion type of house. We are tripping out. My wife and I will look at each other almost every day trying to figure out, like, um, how many of our kids' vital organs do you think would have needed to sell to afford this kitchen? And I think the unanimous decision is always, I think all of them, frankly, if we we're going to be in this place. It's ridiculous. It is more than we could ever have possibly in forever been able to afford. And our neighbors are equally confused. I mean, you can just see the perplexity on their faces. They're like, mm, and they start to make things up to try and solve this mystery. Like, I don't know, I heard they used to live in the hood. Um... I think his wife is actually like a sugar mommy who has a thing for black pastors and she has a secret high income job somewhere. So I don't know, honey, do you? I don't know. I don't know. That's secretive, apparently. Um, it's really fascinating. Like, well, I think I want to laundering some money uh, through the church of some sort or another. As people trying to figure this out, they look at us like, no way. And we're looking at them like, I know, no way. This is our life right now. Anyway, all that to say, last Sunday, um, I got home after church to this home that I just told you um, about. And I walked to the refrigerator, and I checked in there, and uh, lo and behold, a brat, like a bratwurst that I had cooked and kept for such a time as this, had gone missing. None too happy. So needless to say, I threw a minor tantrum in the house. Who took my brat? Now, if you think that's an overreaction, you've clearly never tasted a John Smith brat. There's time. There's time. Work that out. But I was upset. Now, granted, I didn't put my mark on that thing to signify that it was mine. And on top of that, I had a number of other brat were still left in the fridge. But the rea- reality is one was missing. So PSA, if anyone knows who took it, no, that's, that's really not why I'm... Um, I'm sharing this story. Honestly, I think I was mid-fit when it occurred to me, condo, somebody bought you a giant house and you are throwing a tantrum because someone took a glorified hot dog out of the refrigerator. And honestly, it was in that moment, it occurred to me, I think I am already beginning to forget where I came from. I was in the hood just a couple of months ago. And all of a sudden, I'm acting snarky and intense. 
entitled, I might be forgetting where I came from. Because here's the thing. It is so easy to forget where you came from. And if you forget where you came from, you run the risk of not enjoying where you now are. If you forget where you came from, what tends to happen is you lose your ability to make the most of the situation in which you are. I'm in this beautiful place and I'm like, my broadwurst, where did it go? I forget for a moment where I came from. We're in a study in the book of Ephesians. We're going to launch into Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, um, please um, meet me there. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And in so many ways, I wonder if this isn't Paul pulling the church aside and saying, do not forget where you came from. Look around you. This is real. This is yours. These are your blessings. This is your supply. This is what God says is true about you. But you cannot afford to forget where you came from. Because if you begin to forget where you came from, you lose your ability to enjoy this place you could never have afforded. And you lose your ability to make the most of this moment. And so what Paul does in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 is he says, why don't we retrace our story just so we can remember. And, and he reworks their spiritual biography. And it's really interesting the way Paul does this. He almost does it the way a, a medical doctor would. He reminds them of their story by reminding them of their diagnosis. Reminding them of their symptoms and reminding them of their prognosis before they met the person of Jesus Christ. Begging, do not forget where you came from. You were a bunch of impoverished and abandoned orphans who are now living in this beautiful royal palace as the spoiled kids of the king of the universe. And if you're not careful, you might forget where you came from and how you got there. So let's retrace our story just for the sake of a heart check. Look at at what he says. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to just read the first three verses and then pause for a moment. Here's what he says. As for you, remember, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who's now at work in those Who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so Paul starts by reminding them of their diagnosis before Jesus Christ. Listen, when the proverbial doctor was done examining you, He pronounced a diagnosis of death. Look again at verse 1. It says, as for you, you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins. Uh, the word dead in this context, and we'll have this up on the screen, uh, it means to be entirely unaware and unable. It's a word that speaks of complete helplessness. I'm unaware and I'm unable. I'm unaware of the reality in which I exist. And even if I were aware, which I'm not because I'm dead, I would be entirely unable to do anything to change it. Dead. Before Jesus Christ, you were dead. Remember? You can't afford to forget. Okay, now clearly, Paul is no medical um, expert because dead seems a little extreme. And if you're like me, you would say, no, I remember before I got saved and I wasn't dead. I feel like Monty Python. I'm not dead. I feel like I am fully awake and alive and conscious. In fact, can we be honest? There are billions of people in this world who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And they are some of the buffest, most brilliant, and most beautiful people on the planet. They don't seem dead at all. So clearly Paul must be misusing the word dead, unaware, and unable. Which is what makes it so important to read the phrase in its entirety. He says here in verse 1 that you were dead in your sin and transgression. Here's what this means. The mortal diagnosis of death that Paul reminds us of is not a physical diagnosis. It's a spiritual diagnosis. You were dead in your sins and in your transgressions. Spiritually, you were unaware and unable to change anything about your condition. Paul explains this in a couple of other places in his writings. Uh, look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, The God of this age, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot See the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's speaking of an unawareness, a blindness to the fact that we were living in this place called sin. And blind to the reality and to the person of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 6, he says, you see, at just the right time. When we were still powerless, helpless, unable, Christ died for us. We couldn't do anything to change our sinful condition and situation. And Paul is saying, listen, our story started with a mortal diagnosis of death. We were all spiritually dead. We were unable to do anything about this condition in which we lived. Because the reality is no matter how buff or brilliant or beautiful a person might seem physically, apart from Jesus Christ, Paul says 
they are spiritually dead. They cannot see the beauty of Jesus Christ. They are unaware. And they cannot wake themselves up to begin to obey him and to live for him. They are unable. That's a a mortal truth. And he's saying that was true about every single one of us before we met Jesus. And church, that is true about almost 50,000 people in this county today. And that is true for some of us sitting here in the room this very morning. If you're sitting here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive your sin and heal you of this mortal diagnosis, the Bible would say you are spiritually dead. And our prayer is that there would be a mass awakening, not just in this room this morning, but in our county in the coming weeks and the coming months. But Paul goes beyond just reminding us of our mortal diagnosis of spiritual death. He reminds us of our symptoms, the evidence that we were spiritually dead. And it's interesting that the way you could tell we were spiritually dead was by the way we lived when we were spiritually dead, ironically enough. He says, remember Before you met Christ, you lived in this pattern of powerlessness, which is a telltale sign that you're dead. And what Paul does is he reminds us of three ways that showed up in our lives. Three things that we were powerless against. Three things that we were unable to change, which are symptoms and evidences that the diagnosis of death is an accurate one. Look again in verse 2, Ephesians 2, verse 2. He says, sins and transgressions in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. So Paul says, listen, the diagnosis of death was accurate because you lived in a pattern of powerlessness. You were powerless. And the first thing he says is you were powerless to the system. You were powerless against the system. And he says, you followed the ways of this world. He's talking about our social System, a social system that's built on principles and priorities and practices that pull us away from the principles and priorities of God. And the biblical assumption is this, that there is the kingdom and agenda of God, and then there is the kingdom and agenda of this world, and they are constantly pulling in opposite directions. And Paul says, one of the evidences that you were spiritually dead was the fact that the pattern of your life continued to pull in the direction of the system that is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. You are powerless against this system. God says generosity and the system says comfort and be honest. Which did you choose most of the time? 
That's a symptom, Paul says. Bible says, and God says, serve the poor. And the system says, no, 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 seek promotion. Seek advancement of your own agenda. And which did you choose? Which did you spend more of your energies doing? Which did you prioritize? That's an evidence that you were subject to a system. God says, no, no, sex inside of marriage. And the system says, it's just physical. And be honest. Which did you choose to practice? And what did you choose to watch? We were subject and powerless to this system. God says, forgive. The system says, no, 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 no. You have got to get even. And what did you do? You perpetually held grudges against people. That's evidence that you were powerless. And you were pulled into this system. Paul is saying you could tell you were spiritually dead because the symptoms of your life showed it. Our priorities followed the patterns that pulled us away from the principles and priorities of God. But it's interesting, Paul goes even further than that. He says, no, the symptoms were actually more severe than that. Not only were we powerless against a system, he says you were actually powerless against Satan. Look again at verse 2. It says, you followed the ways, the system of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Um, In first century thought, it, it was believed that there was a kingdom of the air. And the kingdom of the air was the kingdom above the earth and beneath the moon for some strange reason. And first century, first century philosophy believed that in that kingdom, in that airy kingdom, is where the demonic forces lived. And, and they would send dreams to humanity. And they would torment humanity from that realm on all kinds of occasions. And what Paul is saying here is, can I confirm that to be true? There is a realm above this world that we cannot see. And he says, it actually has a ruler. It actually has a prince. And he's obviously referring to Satan himself. And it's interesting what Paul is suggesting. And it's sobering, honestly. Because Paul is suggesting, hey, when you gave in, To the pattern of the system of this world. What you didn't realize is that system is not arbitrary. It's actually strategically set up and steered by the prince of the kingdom of the air. The system of the world that pulls away from God isn't arbitrary. Satan is pulling the strings behind the shadows of the scenes. Anytime you find a system that is Pushing away from God. Paul says you better believe. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Is pulling the strings. So when you. When you lived powerless to the system of the world. Giving in and following along. What you didn't realize. Was that you were giving in and following along. With Satan himself who's pulling 
the strings, which is crazy. Because I remember before I was saved. And I just, I rebelled and I chose to pursue sin and selfishness. You know why? Because I was awesome. And I was my own person. And I was going to do my own thing. And what Paul is saying is, if you're following the pattern of the system of disobedience, pulling in an opposite direction from God, guess what you are doing? Satan's thing. He's pulling the strings as your puppeteer, and you don't even have a clue. It's sobering. No, I thought, though, that all these people are like hip and they're cool and they're rebellious and they're swaggy. And it's like, no, they are doing the bidding of an enemy who is diametrically opposed to God and he's playing puppet master. And one of the evidences, one of the symptoms that we carried this death diagnosis was that we were perpetually giving into this pattern That made us powerless, not just to the system, but to Satan himself. If your life is marked by a pattern of disobedience, I'm not saying you messed up. We all mess up. But the priorities and the pursuits of your life are consistently Pulling away from the priorities of God. He says forgive. You say hold a grudge. He says serve the poor. You say just build a bigger empire for yourself. It's likely a symptom that spiritual death is the diagnosis. And our prayers, not just this morning, but that for weeks and weeks to come, outside of these walls, that the string breaker... The pattern changer himself would free us from this place of powerlessness. But Paul is saying you were powerless to the system and to Satan. Do you remember that? And he goes and gives one more symptom of the death diagnosis. He says we weren't just powerless to a system and we weren't just powerless to Satan. We're actually powerless to ourselves. We were powerless to ourselves. And I read that and I'm like, oh man, Paul is so smart. The Bible must be inspired. How did he know that I would read that and say, whew, thank you. (laughs) It is the big bad devil and the messed up world That made me do it. So I'm just a victim. And he says, no, 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 no. You are also in cahoots with this system. You are an active participant. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 3. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time. What were we doing? We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh or of our sinful nature. And we were following the thoughts and desires of our sinful nature. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I thought I was powerless though. Well, yeah, powerless doesn't mean I don't have the ability to choose. Powerless means I cannot choose 
to stop sinning. I cannot just choose to stop following the pattern of the system. I cannot just choose to stop giving in to myself. And that's what Paul is saying. We knew we were dead because we couldn't stop giving into our sinful impulses. We couldn't say no to our cravings for pleasure and for comfort. If we had this desire and this urge and we thought something would bring us pleasure, we would eventually say yes to it unless we thought we ran the risk of doing something that would bring us less pleasure. And so we weighed our pleasures. But he says ultimately we gave in over and over to what we sinfully wanted against what God said. Before Christ, we were unable to say no to ourselves. Even the things that violated our own principles of what we thought was good. And you know that. I mean, how are you doing your New Year's resolutions? It's October. Right? That's a symptom. He says... When we give in to our sinful desire, it's a symptom of spiritual death. We were dead in sin. Do you remember that? Paul says you cannot afford to forget. We were powerless to say no to the system, no to Satan, and no to ourselves. But it was worse than that. Which is so interesting because in the medical world, there is no worse diagnosis than death. No medical expert can walk into a waiting room and give you any worse report than death. But in the spiritual world, church, the diagnosis of death is just the prelude to the prognosis that follows. And look at what he says in verse 3 again. So as we lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Another version says, we were by nature objects or targets of wrath. Meaning there is only one prognosis. For the diagnosis of spiritual death. And that prognosis is holy wrath. It only ends one way. One way. And that is in the holy wrath of God. And then the wrath is just describing the truth that God will punish with the full weight of his holy anger. Everyone who has rebelled against him. Look at how it's described in Revelation chapter 20 in this chilling passage. Um, It says, starting at verse 12, it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, because apparently death is not the end. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, the death beyond death. 
Verse 15 says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And Paul is saying that was our prognosis before we met Jesus. That was our inevitable destiny before we met Christ. And he says, and we deserved it. Can I just take a quick moment to speak to this? That is such a profoundly significant word for us to read, that we deserved the wrath of God, especially in an entitled culture. It is amazing how often I will hear people almost putting God in the dock and putting him on trial and then just waging accusations at him. And the question often starts something like this. How could a loving God do something like that? How could a loving God let innocent people, etc., etc., etc.? You know, the fascinating thing about the Bible church is one of the first characteristics God reveals about himself is not his love, it's his holiness. On the mount, he's not talking about his love. He's saying, I am a holy God, and he gives commandments, standards to meet his level of holiness. And what I would encourage you to do is ask the question, how could a holy God let and see where it takes you? So honestly, the only question you can ask is, how could a holy God let me take one more sip of air? I know I've sinned. I know I've messed up. And yet we stand and say, God, listen, how could you being this, that, and the other? And Paul reminds us, no, we deserved this. This isn't God being vindictive. This is God being holy and God being just. I'm telling you, unless we understand God is holy and we're deserving of his wrath, grace means nothing. You dilute his holiness and you dilute grace. And Paul is saying, no, we were deserving of this prognosis, the inevitable prognosis of everyone who has rebelled, everyone who has gone their own way. And he says, when you look around at your surroundings and you look around at these blessings in which you now live, do not forget where you came from. And what was true about you before you meet Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the rest of the gospel, the rest of the story makes no sense. And it's not as enjoyable. And we'll sing, this is amazing grace and be seldom amazed. Because it's not that amazing. Unless this prognosis is true. And Paul says, but y'all remember that that's not how the story ends. It doesn't end with a prognosis of wrath. Paul says, but turns out there was a remedy for the diagnosis. There was a remedy for the prognosis. Look at what he says in in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. He says, but... Because of his great love for us, because he is loving. God, who is rich in mercy, because he's loaded in compassion, made us alive 
in Christ, with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You couldn't afford it. And God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. You couldn't do it. Your neighbors are right. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There is a remedy. I love the word, but love it. I cannot lie. Our hope hinged on this word. Our eternity depended on this word. Our destination swiveled on that contrastive word. Death was the diagnosis, but wrath was the prognosis, but what a word. Turns out there is a remedy for spiritual death and eternal wrath. Remember, your diagnosis was death. Remember, you can't afford to forget. Remember, your prognosis was wrath. You can't afford to forget. But remember, the remedy was grace. Look again at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God made me spiritually Alive, even when I was dead. That's the most beautiful news to humanity, by the way. There's never been greater news. It's called the gospel good news for a very good reason. That God looked at dead and rebellious people. And he cared so much for us. That's what it means when he says love. God is full of love. And instead of pouring out the wrath we had earned, he breathed out life and raised us from death. That's what it means when it says he's rich in mercy. He withheld what he had every right to give us in his mercy. And we know the story, at least many of us do. He did it. Because Jesus agreed to take our death diagnosis and to experience our wrath prognosis on the cross. The Lamb of God in my place. He agreed to take our place so that people who had earned and deserved death get his life. But we don't deserve that, Paul. Yep, that's why it's called grace. It's un. Deserved favor. The only remedy for the spiritually dead. Grace. Now, I feel like it's fair to warn you that should you ever choose to accept grace, it comes with some serious side effects that that you might need to know uh, about. In fact, it might be better to call them up effects because apparently God didn't just raise us from the dead. He raised us to sit with Jesus Christ in heavenly places in which, by the way, now the ruler of the air is under our feet and powerless to puppeteer us. Just a side effect you, you might be aware of. 
And God poured out so much mercy on us. He diverted the wrath we deserved and directed it to Jesus Christ. And then he diverted the riches of Jesus and he directed them to us. So many riches, by the way, that it's going to require eternity for God to show us another room in that mansion that we could not possibly afford but by grace. That's what Paul is describing in verse 6 and in verse Seven, God's immense grace. And then just to make sure that we never forget, Paul says it one more time. It was all grace. Look again at verse 8 and 9. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works, so that no one can boast. That is Paul's do not forget where you came from and what it took to get you here. You were dead and you were doomed. And now you're alive and you are loaded blessed. There is no possible way you could ever take credit for any of that. You just have to agree with the heavenly realm who look at you and say, how did you get here? I know. We were in the hood last month. There is nothing you could possibly have done to make this happen. It's by grace. You cannot afford to forget where you came from. Lest you start to think, maybe you did something. You did nothing. Listen, the thing about being spiritually dead and why it is so important for us to talk about that is when you're dead, you can't do anything to stop being dead. Lazarus would have been an idiot to start telling his friends and then, you know, one day I'm like, I'm tired of being dead. So I just started unwrapping my stuff and I just walked out. No, you didn't. Jesus called you by name and the power and weight of his voice awakened you to life. Lest you start to think you did something, that it's about your work. Or lest you start to think it's something about your worth. That God was looking around and he saw you. And you had that one quality that God just had to have. He says, no, you were an object. You were deserving of wrath. It's all grace. It's all mercy. This is so huge for us to grab a hold of. Because when we begin to forget who we were and where we came from, the church starts to talk. The world out there, those sinful, sinful people. We start looking down our noses at all the sinners out there. Isn't that a trip? Grace is looking at us like the what did you say? I don't know. All those people who live in the hood. They're so gross. Jeffrey, get me another drink. Like all of a sudden I believe I made my way into this neighborhood. And we do. We start to talk about what we're against, not what we're for. We start to talk about us and we start to talk about them. Because we've forgotten that we were all the them. 
And Paul is saying you cannot afford to forget where you came from. And in fact, if you remember where you came from, it won't lead you to some kind of us and them looking down on the people out there who are in the same situation we were in before grace. He says it will actually move us to work to do everything we can to help those who are spiritually dead find life in Jesus Christ. I think that's what he means. Look at verse 10, how he wraps this up. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. No one is wakened by works, but we are wakened to work. I think part of the work, and we know this, is the work of sharing this grace, this remedy that we've received with the people in the world around us. Um, I've been to the doctors a couple of times in the last um, month or so. Well, technically, one of them was like a holistic health um, guy. Um, But in both cases, I got there, and these people, they gave me a semester's worth of paperwork to fill out before I could actually see them. I'm like, I feel sicker now than I did when I actually came in to see you in the first place. But one of the first questions both of those places asked me on their forms was, who referred you? Who who recommended you? Um, In other words, how did you hear about us? And I love, by the way, the fact that in both situations, I'm like, some guy from our church told me um, about you. So whoever you are, I hope you, you both get a little uh, kickback for that. But you know what's interesting? That is exactly why Mission Point Community Church was launched. That was always the dream. There are almost 50,000 people who are still spiritually dead in our community. And I'm telling you what the dream is. The dream is that there are a few thousand of those people who will one day make it to heaven. And when they're filling out the paperwork and God asks them, how did you hear about this place? They'll say, somebody from that Mission Point Church referred me to you. Somebody who bought into the remedy that wakened them to life referred me to you. I was at some, some love bliss thing happened and they came out demonstrating the love of Jesus and I had to ask what is this whole thing about and they told me about this place. Wait a minute, Kondo. I, I thought if people are unaware and they're unable, then does it even make a difference when we say things to them or do things to them and what difference does our effort make? It doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, but the thing is, the spirit of the living God who raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in you. When you reach out in gestures of love and you share the gospel, which is the power of salvation, it has the ability to waken somebody who's unaware and unable. That's, by the way, why we want to do love blitz. He has poured out riches of his love on us so much that we can't store all this. We've got to share it to the people who most desperately need to see a picture of a God who is rich in love. And by the way, when we say, please help us do this work. And you say, "Mm, no, thanks. I'm like, I wonder if you forgot where you came from, 
and how you got here. No, I don't, I don't want to go into the streets. They're dirty. Those people out there. We're busy <laughs> making money and being comfortable. You forgot. You forgot. Because if we remember, it will push us to go back to the very place from which we were rescued and share the very remedy that rescued us. And something as simple as love blitz is an opportunity for us to just go and say, hey, here's a glimpse of the love of Jesus Christ. Because I'm telling you, the most grateful recipients of grace are the loudest referrers of Jesus Christ. If you're not loudly referring, if you're not loudly loving, I wonder if you forgot. And Paul says you cannot afford to forget. And so, Lord, I pray for this church, for us, that we would not in any way forget the mercy and the grace we've received. We were spiritually dead. Now we pray that we would live our lives joining you in your work of sharing hope with those who are dead. There is a remedy. It's grace. It's Jesus Christ. And Lord, even this morning, I pray for anyone who's here who has not said yes to Jesus' offer of forgiveness, that you would awaken, that you would bring awareness, that you would bring life, and that you would give the face to say, I'm all in. Jesus is my only hope. So awaken some even here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.